You're listening to the Pursuit of Christ podcast, where we are passionate about developing a deeper relationship with Jesus. The Pursuit of Christ podcast is a ministry of Arise Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. If you would like to contact us or have questions about our podcast, we can be reached via email at info at arisebaptistchurch.org. Now here's James Collard with today's challenge from Scripture. Last week, we left Queen Esther fasting, spiritually preparing to put her own life in danger in an effort to preserve her people. She has uttered the immortal words, if I perish, I perish. As we pick up the story in Esther chapter 5, we see Esther seizing the reins and taking a true leadership role for the preservation of her people. Verses 1 and 2 state, Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Esther's actions in approaching the king without prior approval was a serious breach of court etiquette. Both Herodotus and Josephus note that Xerxes had a law prohibiting individuals from approaching him without a summons. Josephus, in his histories, adds that there were men with axes surrounding Xerxes to punish those who advanced upon the throne without a royal invitation. This adherence to protocol took precedence even over the marriage relationships, which is why Esther was placing her own life in danger to approach the king. So why didn't Esther go through the proper channels to try and secure an audience with the king before walking into the throne room unannounced? The most likely explanation is that Esther doesn't want to reveal any aspect of her mission to Haman. Loken, in his commentary, states, It is more likely that Esther avoids the proper channels in an effort to keep her mission secret from Haman. Haman's exalted position in the king's court likely meant that he governed access to the king. Surely he would have become aware of anyone seeking an audience with the king. As a result, it is probable that Esther's plan might have become known to Haman had she followed proper court etiquette. Well, the king soon sees Esther standing in the court. What is observed with the eyes is very important in the book of Esther. Laniac explains, Although the king had not sent for her in 30 days, Esther clearly regained her position of favor once the king saw his queen. Literally, she gained favor in his eyes. Seeing is a key theme in the banquets of chapter 1, during which the king sought to display or literally make others see his wealth and his queen. Because Esther was good in Haggai's eyes, she gained kindness. That was back in Esther chapter 2 and verse 9. Esther 2.15 summarizes Esther's impact on the whole court by emphasizing her appearance. Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. So, The same favor which resulted in Esther being chosen as the leading lady of Persia now resulted in the king's decision to extend his golden scepter and receive Esther into his presence. Royal protocol dictated that the one to whom the scepter was pointed would approach the throne and touch the end of the scepter. 
After Esther engages in this royal protocol, Xerxes questions her concerning her motives for being in the courtroom. Verse 3 states, Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given thee, even to half of the kingdom. Xerxes realizes that something is weighing heavily on Esther's mind. Why else would she have risked her life to enter the king's presence unannounced? The phrase, it shall be given thee to half of the kingdom, was a popular idiom during biblical times. And what it denoted was that the one offering was willing to grant a favor. This is the same phrase that's used by Herod when he was pleased by the entertainment provided by the daughter of Herodias in Mark 6, 23. That says, and he swear unto her, whatever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Well, the request that Esther makes seems peculiar on the surface. Verse 4 states, And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. However, the purpose for moving to a separate location is so that Esther can make her request to the king in a less formal environment. The king would have been surrounded by his cupbearer, guards, and various other servants. A banquet would have provided Esther with the privacy necessary to articulate what was on her mind. Esther also makes sure to invite Haman to this banquet. The king immediately agrees to Esther's request. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Notice that, I think that this is super interesting, notice that Esther already had the food prepared so that the parties could sit down and eat. This, to me, is an incredible act of faith on her part, which demonstrated her confidence that God would move Xerxes' heart to show her favor in the throne room. After the banquet had commenced, Xerxes again asks Esther her request. Verse 6 states, And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Esther puts off the king's request by scheduling another banquet. Notice verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my petition and to perform my request... Let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Commentators have offered a variety of opinions as to why Esther employs a strategy of two banquets, but I think that Loken, again, is very helpful here. He states, Esther is skillfully manipulating the king to agree to her ultimate request by accepting her invitation to a second banquet. Just as salesmen attempt to persuade their clients to make a large decision by getting them to agree to a sequence of small decisions, here Esther gets the king to grant her initial request, thereby making it more likely that he will grant her ultimate request. And as we dig further into the book, we see other opportunities where Esther manipulates Xerxes to achieve the end of preserving the Jewish nation. And so I don't think that it's out of character to see her here manipulating Xerxes in this way. Now, what this second invitation also did was it massaged the arrogance and the self-centeredness of Haman. But his happiness was incredibly short-lived. The text says, Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with glad heart. 
But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh his wife. Lokin, again, is helpful here regarding Haman's swift change of circumstances. He states, The reversal of fortune motif that characterizes Haman's role in the narrative is prevalent throughout the Old Testament. It is evident in the life of Samson in Judges 16, where Samson falls victim to a temptress after having consistently achieved victory over the greatest warriors of the Philistines. It is also observed in the life of Solomon in 1 Kings 11, when the Lord raised up a series of adversaries to antagonize the great king who had previously enjoyed a reign characterized by peace. It is further seen in the lives of David, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, among many others. In each case, the Lord uses this technique to demonstrate his sovereignty over even the greatest of men. So we will see again the Lord use this reversal of fortune motif in the life of Haman. And we see that Haman's happiness is quickly turned to anger when he leaves the first banquet and he sees Mordecai in the king's gate. Mordecai, as was his custom, refused to bow down before Haman. And this threw Haman into a rage. He is angry. But he is able to exert at least a measure of self-control, most probably because he is looking forward to the day when his revenge, not just on Mordecai, but on all the Jews, would be realized. Now, when Haman arrives at home, he brings his friends and his family together to recount his greatness. Notice verses 11 and 12. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and the servants of the king. Haman said, moreover, yea, Esther, the queen, did let no man come with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared, but myself and tomorrow I am invited unto her also with the king. Now, let's be honest, right? By all human standards, Haman had it going on. He is an incredibly wealthy man. I mean, he was able to invest 10,000 talents into his quest to exterminate the Jews. He had 10 sons, uh, which was the height of prestige in the ancient world. And he was the grand vizier of Persia. He is the second most powerful man in the entire known world. But notice his words in verse 13. Yet all of this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Loken states, in the eyes of Haman, all that he has gained is worthless in light of the insubordination of Mordecai. As is so often the case with those who are rich and powerful, Haman desires for just one more thing in the belief that it will finally make him happy and content. Now, this next part blows me away. After hearing Haman's lament, his wife provides counsel. We see her words in verse 14, the last verse in this chapter. Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. So his wife, Zeresh, her counsel is simply build a gallows, get the king's permission to execute Mordecai. 
And notice the gallows that she suggests, the gallows that she suggests is 50 cubits high. That translates to about 75 feet tall. This is outlandishly large for its intended purpose. And I think clearly here, the intention of building a structure this immense is to publicly humiliate Mordecai upon his execution. Zeresh is a cold, calculating woman. Her advice to her husband is to execute Mordecai, then go merrily with the king under the banquet. Just kill this man and go and be happy. The NIV application commentary notes the similarities between the advice of Zeresh and the advice that Jezebel gave to Ahab in the matter of Naboth's vineyard. The commentary states, Zeresh's advice is reminiscent to that of Jezebel when her husband, King Ahab, was sulking like a spoiled child. Like Haman, all of Ahab's power and entitlements failed to satisfy because he wanted just one more thing, the vineyard owned by Naboth. Jezebel's solution was to arrange the murder of Naboth so that Ahab could have what he wanted. With similar reasoning, Zeresh counsels Haman simply to kill Mordecai. The satisfaction of human pride in, in his demand for honor and respect outweigh the value of human life in the pagan world of Persia. And this is where we leave our story today. This is as dark as it gets. To recap, the Jews are still under the order of the death document. Esther, who was still alive and under favor from the king, has established a second banquet, but still has not made her request to the king. And now Haman, who is fed up with Mordecai's utter contempt, has made arrangements for his execution upon the king's approval. The Jews need a turning point, and God needs to work on their behalf. But before we leave our story today, let's address the major questions. First, where do we see the sovereign providence of God at work in Esther chapter 5? Well, I see it clearly in two places, and I hope that you did as well. In verse 2, Esther finds favor in the sight of Xerxes, and he extends the golden scepter to her. This actually runs contrary to his previous treatment of her, as was noted in the text, because Esther hadn't been called into the king's presence in a month. But Psalm 21 and verse 1 states, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water he turneth, turneth it whithersoever he will. I believe that God providentially turned the heart of Xerxes to favor Esther in this moment of crisis. And secondly, I see God's providence seen when Haman leaves the banquet of Esther and sees Mordecai sitting in the gate. It is not simple coincidence that Haman and Mordecai intersect at this moment. God has allowed them to meet to allow Haman to go home and pout to his friends and family. And it's really this interaction that sets up Haman for, spoilers here, right? That sets up Haman for his grand fall later in the book. So if that's where we see God's sovereign providence, where or what then is our lesson for the marketplace? Well, I think that it would be good today for us to be reminded of the dangers of pride. Haman was filled with pride, and when his pride was offended, he went home and sulked and pouted to his wife and to his friends. Our flesh loves to cater to our arrogance and to our self-centeredness. We know that we should steer clear and put our pride to death, yet we often struggle in this crucial area. 
We not only struggle, we run headfirst towards self-glorification because pride finds every nook and cranny in our sinful heart and it burrows there. But pride is deadly serious because it is cosmic treason. It is the elevating of oneself to a position that only God himself is deserving of. And as C.J. Mahaney writes, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. So pride then seeks a form of independence and desires praise and adoration either from self or from those around us. And this is the danger of pride. It juxtaposes us against God and it seeks the glory that belongs to God and God alone. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher, warned, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us that pride goeth before destruction. And Psalm 31, 23 warns that the Lord abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Pride is a dangerous sin and it is one that leads us to the very gates of hell itself. The way to kill pride is to see ourselves in the light of the gospel. Jonathan Woodyard, in his excellent article entitled, Pride is Poisoning Your Happiness, states, The gospel reminds us that it took the Son of God dying in our place in order to save us from sin, death, and hell. The God of self is a weak God, unable to save even itself from destruction. It's difficult to be prideful when the gospel tells us that we are sinful and wicked, even from birth. Pride is insanity for those who know that they are unable to save themselves and must be helped by another. In other words, the gospel of grace crushes the God of self by showing how truly ungodlike we are and setting us free to praise the God of our salvation. When we are truly honest about who we are in our fallen sinful state, it motivates us to, as it did to the prophet Isaiah during his vision in Isaiah chapter 6, it motivates us to praise the one who is beautiful beyond measure and transcendent in holiness. It drives us to whisper in hushed reverence, here am I, send me. It recalibrates our focus to let the mind of Christ be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Simply put, when we view both ourselves and Christ's immense sacrifice through the lens of the gospel, it cuts the legs out from our pride and drives us to our knees in humble praise for the one who, as Jude states, is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Fight your pride. Strive for humility. Glory in your Savior and not yourself. That is the charge. Haman is the warning of a soul consumed by pride. Heed the warning and fight to kill pride in your own life this week. Well, I want to thank you for listening today. Now, I do want to let you know that we're going to take a couple of, week, uh, couple of weeks off from producing our podcast. And really, there's two reasons for this. First, we want to increase our listener base. So if you have enjoyed listening to the Pursuit of Christ podcast, we would love for you to share it with someone else. 
Our goal is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you think that this podcast would help a friend, family member, or coworker, please share our information with them. And we would love to have them join and listen in and be a part of this effort. And second, we want to allow any new listeners to get the chance to get caught up on our story in Esther. We're about to hit a crucial turning point in the book. So now is an excellent time to get caught up if you're a few episodes behind. And as we leave today, if there's anything that we can do to help you, if you need prayer or encouragement, we hope that you'll reach out to our team here at Arise. You can reach us via email at info at arisebaptistchurch.org or connect with us on Facebook. There is nothing that would please us more than to help you passionately pursue after Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening today, and we'll see you again next week. God bless.